Welcome to Bible Insights with Wayne Conrad. God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Have you ever traced your family lineage, that is, your family tree? Uh, There's been a couple of times in my life when I've been sort of fascinating and wanting to trace my family line uh, by my father, who was part Cherokee, uh, by my mother, who's, uh, you know, English, Welsh, Scottish mix, uh, different family lines. But there's a union between them that produced me some years ago. And so I've always uh, wanted to know, well, who was in my family and where do they come from? We call this a genealogy. Now, many people in America don't necessarily know how valuable genealogies are or how important they are in the biblical stories, but they're extremely important in the biblical stories. And so when we open the Gospel of Matthew, we may be suddenly struck with a whole list of names, and we think, what is this? Where's the story? Well, the story begins in Matthew chapter 1 with the following words. The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then what Matthew does is he gives a listing, not a full listing, but a significant listing of the ancestry of Jesus via the line of Joseph, that is, the legal line. And it's very interesting because the first part of it, verses 1 through 6, let me read those to you. It says, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Amimadad. Amimadad fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Ruth. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. Then David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. And though it goes all the way down until we reach verse 17. Uh, Well, verse 16 before that. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David into the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile in Babylon into the Messiah, 14 generations. So obviously what Matthew has done is he has selected certain names in the line. His effort is to prove that Jesus is a descendant of two people, a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of King David. Now, both descendancies are necessary for the Messiah. And so he lays forth the case by the genealogy of Jesus. How's how Matthew's gospel opens before he tells you about the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. Now, the gospel of Luke also has a genealogy of Jesus. It doesn't happen on the first verse. and It is in chapter 3 after Jesus' baptism. Now, what's the great significance here? You see, Jesus' baptism marks the beginning of his ministry. 
Now, both genealogies that are given by these gospel writers serve a particular purpose. In Matthew's gospel, he is intent to show Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the prophets, and so Matthew's gospel is built on this, and he has the right pedigree, the right lineage, all the way back to Abraham, with whom God established the Abrahamic covenant, and with David, with whom God entered into what we call the Davidic covenant. Both of those concern the Messiah, which also relates all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where there was the promise about the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. But in Luke's gospel, interestingly, it doesn't begin at the beginning. It begins with Jesus and works backwards. So we can compare those. If you look at Luke chapter 3, at just the beginning of it, it says that Jesus was born, you know, of Mary and that she was the wife of Joseph. Let, Let me read those verses to you. It says, when the people were being baptized, Jesus also was baptized, etc. As he began his ministry, verse 23, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mattai, son of Levi. So you'll notice there's some differences, and those differences are significant, but they play a particular role. In Luke's account, he's taking Jesus all the way back to Adam. He traces his line all the way back to Adam. In Matthew's gospel, he traces from Abraham and David to Jesus. And notice the particular phraseology when it says, And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Now, there's another interesting thing about the genealogies that I won't point out to you. The genealogy in Matthew is very different than usual genealogies. And the reason for that is that Matthew's genealogy lists five women. Then this is totally uncharacteristic. In addition, these would not be the women we would think he would mention. For instance, he begins with Abraham, but he doesn't mention Sarah. Okay, so the first woman that he mentions is Tamar. The second woman that he mentions is Rahab. The third woman that he mentions is Ruth. And the fourth woman that he mentions, the name is not given, but she is described as Uriah's wife. Now, this is very unusual, highly unusual for one to do a genealogy this way. So what then is the purpose? Why does Matthew single out these women? What is so significant about this? Well, let's consider them very briefly. Each one of them in a way, is totally unexpected to have been mentioned in the genealogy of the Messiah. The first one mentioned is Tamar. Now, who is Tamar? Well, she was a widow who had been married to Ur, the first son of Judah. And Judah was the firstborn of Jacob, 
And it's through his line that the royal seed would come, as prophesied in Genesis 49 about the scepter not departing from Judah. But she died, I mean, her husband died, and they had no children. They did not have a male heir or any children whatsoever. Now, under the conventional arrangement of those days, the father of the husband should have then given another one of his sons to father a child by her, and that child would inherit and, and be the descendant of the first husband, Ur. But Judah did not honor this arrangement. And so ultimately, the two that were after Ur, they did not follow through with the arrangement they were supposed to have. And so God became angry with him, it says, and God killed him. But Tamar then had the youngest son. He was supposed to give her, him, as the father. But when time came, he did not to honor that. And so what Tamar did is that she used her, her smarts, shall we say, to get a descendant. Now, it would be a male descendant for Judah as well. That should be kept in mind. But she was a widower, and she seduced her father. Now, how did she do that? Well, how she did that was that Judah was a businessman, and he would travel from one location to another a certain route. And so one day, she simply dressed herself up on the side of the road, and she covered up her head, and this was sort of a signal that she would be uh, a prostitute. And Judah stopped. He engaged her. But before the act, she said, well, you'll need to give me a pledge that you will send back the payment. And so she asked for certain things to be in the pledge. Now, you can read all about this in the book of Genesis. But by laying with her, she conceived. And she kept with her his staff, uh, his cloak, and uh, one other item. Three things that belong to him. Well, three months passes, and he hears that his daughter-in-law, the widowed daughter-in-law, is pregnant. And so he becomes very angry, and he commands that she be brought forth and be burned to death for her immorality. But she sends word or tells him, I am fathered, the father of this child is the man who owns these items. And then she presents these items that belong to him. Now, it's very interesting that Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child of the man who owns these. She also said, please discern whose these are. The signet, that was on a kind of ring, the cords, and the staff. And Judah acknowledged them and said, she is more righteous than I, because I didn't give her, Shelah, my son. So this was an immoral act on both parts of this parent of this child. But the child named Perez is in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we can go down the line to the next, which is Rahab. Now this is told in Joshua. 
I believe it's uh, maybe uh, chapter 2, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not sure what chapter it is right now. But at any rate, uh, the following is said. Joshua is there, and the army is outside the city of Jericho, which God is going to deliver into their hands. But before any of this action takes place, he sends spies into Jericho to find out about their defenses, etc. So the spies come in, and they spy out what's going on, and Rahab meets them, and she gives them shelter. And it's very interesting, she hides them then. When the king of Jericho, uh, we might call him the mayor in our day, but when he comes around, he, he's heard that there's some spies in the territory, so he comes around trying to find them, and they said that they visited Rahab. She's known for her profession. He goes to her house, but she says they're not there, but she has hidden them on the roof. Now, why did Rahab do that? Well, Rahab hid them because she had heard that God, the God of the Hebrews, was defending them. And he had defeated the two kings before them, and he had brought them forth through the Red Sea and had destroyed the Egyptian host that pursued them. So this was the true God, and Rahab had come to believe that. And she came to hide them because she wanted to ask mercy of them that this God would spare her when the city fell. And so Rahab, a prostitute from Jericho who protects Joshua's spies, and as a reward, she's spared when the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. In addition, she's adopted into God's family because she marries one of the spies by the name of Salmon. It's very interesting. Let's, let's listen to her confession of faith. Because this is the great-grandmother of King David. This is what she says. For when we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sahan and to Og, whom you utterly destroyed, as soon as we heard it, she's talking about the inhabitants of Jericho, our hearts melted, and there wasn't any more spirit in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by Yahweh, since I've dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a true sign. And they did so. They gave her a red cord to hang out the window of her apartment, which was up on the higher floor. And when the soldiers came in to utterly destroy that city, she and all the family that she had within her house was spared, similar to what God did in Egypt during the Passover time. But Ruth, you see, not Ruth, but Rahab, you see, became a true believer in the true God. Now, these are just two of the women. Because when we get to Ruth, we have a different situation. And when we get to Bathsheba, there's also a different situation. So there are a number of things these women had in common, and there are some things that are different. So the next one would be Ruth. She is a Gentile. 
They're all Gentiles so far. Tamar was a Gentile. Rahab was obviously a Gentile. Ruth was a Gentile because her husband, who was the son of Naomi, married her, a Moabite. She's described as a Moabite. So she is not a, uh, a true believer in God when they meet. But she becomes a believer in the true God. And after her husband dies and Naomi decides to return to the homeland, she decides or elects to go with her mother-in-law out of great love and loyalty. So these two widows go back to the land and they have no visible means of support. But Ruth has become a believer in the true God. And as a reward, she marries Boaz. Now, who is Boaz? Well, we read it in our story at the beginning. Boaz, you see, was the son of Rahab. Now, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. So that's Ruth's son, Obed. But when Obed married, he fathered Jesse. We're not told his mother, the mother's name, the wife's name. And when Jesse, we're not told Jesse's wife's name, fathered King David. But these women had been singled out. These women, of all those women, had been singled out. Why? Well, there are two more women to cover, and I might make my broadcast too long. So we're going to re return to this. But what have we learned so far? We've we learned that God will show mercy to people when they believe in his word, God will show mercy to people when they are in line to help the fulfillment of his promises and that God can take even very sinful actions such as that of Tamar and Rahab and he can turn even evil into good ultimately to fulfill his purposes of redemption for people. So this is part of the history of King David and part of the history of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, one last thing I just want to mention, because Mary is the last one mentioned. There's nothing unsavory about Mary. She's absolutely pure. But it is important that in the genealogy, Joseph is never decide, described as the father of Jesus. It's only indicated that Jesus is biologically descended from Mary. So no set language. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who's called the Messiah. Matthew is very careful to separate and to show that Jesus is born of a virgin. And Luke, in his gospel, does the same. Jesus, the virgin-born Son of God. Yet, he came from a line of sinners, though he himself remained utterly sinless in order to redeem sinners by his own precious blood. This has been Wayne Conrad with Bible Insights. And the next time, it makes a difference who your father is, 
but it can also make a difference who your mother is.